Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy with something a little different for you this week. Our editor-in-chief, Zanny Minton-Beddoes, has been talking to Christine Lagarde, president of the European Central Bank. A woman shaking up the idea of what it means to be a top central banker, she's not an economist, but a lawyer and a former business executive and politician by background. And she brings a high public profile to the job with a glittering CV. She took over as France's finance minister in 2007 and went on to run the IMF. Her willingness to venture into areas that many central bankers consider political terrain has caused some controversy along the way. She has conviction on matters such as climate change and gender equality, subjects she promoted at the IMF. Are these issues a priority for her at the ECB? Ms Lagarde's term lasts for eight years. She became president at the end of 2019 and quickly had to deal with a global pandemic. So this week we're asking, what are the remedies for the economic ills of COVID-19? Here's Zanny Minton-Beddoes in conversation with Christine Lagarde at a webinar organised by The Economist. I wanted to start with the pandemic. You've been president of the European Central Bank, I think now for 15 months. And for most of that time, Europe, like the rest of the world, has been battling a once in a century pandemic. I'm pretty sure it's not what you were imagining the job would be about when you accepted it. But let's start with your assessment of how Europe has reacted to COVID, because it looks like there's been a lot of criticism, particularly of the EU's handling from the sluggish vaccine distribution to insufficient fiscal stimulus. Do you think that criticism is warranted? Let me backtrack for a second. If you uh, remember the early days, I think uh, there was a lot of praise actually for Europe. Praise because we all reacted very quickly. The European authorities, both at the central bank levels, moved fast and big. The European Commission moved pretty fast as well to lift the state aid restrictions, to put in place the escape clause in order not to restrict member states from spending and using their fiscal space and beyond. In that phase, there was a very, very quick response from Europe. Forceful action as well that that really... I think took a lot of observers by surprise, which is why they have forgotten about it now. And they only tend to focus to uh, the latest rollout of uh, vaccination. And I think that, I guess when you have such an unbelievable crisis, something that was unparalleled that we had not seen since the Second World War, it's hardly surprising that not everything was perfect and that there may have been some faux pas, as they call it, But equally, some amazing things were developed. You know, the development of vaccinations in a matter of a year when normally it takes 10 years. The way in which rolling out is now taking place, finally, after the little hiccups here and there. So I think there has been quite an impressive response from the European authorities. And I wouldn't say anything else, but I, I happen to actually believe that we went faster and bigger, certainly as far as the European Central Bank was concerned, than many had anticipated. 
It took a teeny tiny bit of adjustment to begin with, for sure. But then after that, uh, we rolled out fast and furious. At the beginning, there was clearly a sort of an impressive reaction and in fact some surprise that Europe had done as much as it had done, both in terms of the sort of joint fiscal response and indeed all of the sort of communal approach more broadly. But but it's you know it's not just the vaccine, right? The the fiscal response has the decision has been taken, but there's been remarkably little action. And if anything, Europe is going to have, you know, much less fiscal stimulus, and I think you've actually spoken about that in the past, than might have been anticipated. So Isn't it disappointing in the recent past what has happened? And perhaps more importantly, what will the knock-on effect of that be on the European economic outlook? It looks now as though Europe's going to have a slower, weaker recovery, certainly than the one anticipated in America. The fiscal response was weaker in Europe than it was in, in America. That's for sure. Whether you talk about the 900 billion initial stimulus package or the expected but not yet confirmed 1.9 trillion fiscal stimulus that is being considered by the, uh, the current administration. But let's not forget that we have two layers in this part of the world in Europe, where you have the national layers and then you have the regional pan-European layers. And here we are talking about, in a way, the European process, which sometimes is a bit cumbersome, which sometimes is a bit slow, as a result of which uh, the funding hopefully will be spent uh, in the second half of 21 for the first tranches that are due to kickstart the investment, the focus on green, the focus on digital. But it, it is a bit slow. And that's the reason I have said repeatedly, and I'm not the only one, member states, please ratify, do that in short order, complete your plans, don't slow down the process, because the pandemic is accelerating everything. So it's not the time for any of us to slow down. We have to keep at it and uh, and for some, accelerate the process. Is there a danger that particularly the Commission's recent poor handling affects that, that it is corrosive to the political will to move and to accelerate within Europe? I, I don't think so. I really don't think so, because it is in every member state's interest to move fast. All member states have skin in the game and all can benefit from the process of this next generation EU fund. So because it's in their interest, as usual, then they will move. And is it going to be, let's assume it's all done, but is it on a big enough scale? Because if you look across the Atlantic, you know, they've done, I think, 16% of GDP already in stimulus. And the, and the Biden plan is would take it up to something like 26% of GDP, way, way bigger than anything Europe is planning. I mean, should, you, should Europe be taking more of a sort of leaf out of the American book and be much bigger and bolder on fiscal stimulus? You know, we're talking about economies that are vastly different. You know, the automatic stabilizers in Europe are much uh, larger, stronger and provide better welfare and coverage than what exists in most American states, because a lot of those um, welfare benefits are actually handled at state levels. We're really talking about different economies, but it is a fact that at this point in time, as we speak, Zani, there is still a lot of uncertainty around because the rollout of vaccinations, the evolution of variants, the spreading of those, the response that we have. All that is this sort of big series of clouds over our heads. And they clear one by one, hopefully. But in the meantime, we have to just hold the economies. And as far as you know, monetary support, we also have to continue to uh, apply accommodative monetary policies in order to provide uh, favorable financing conditions to all 
throughout the euro area uh, without distinctions and to households, to corporates, to sovereign, in order to make sure that they can sustain the effort and go to the other end of that bridge, which is that period of time when it is still slow, still contained, with still quite a lot of lockdown uh, measures and vaccinations is just uh, moving up. So if fiscal policy may have to do more until the end of, in, into next year, does monetary policy have to do more too? Or is it just remain comp- accommodative? You know, we have a particular instrument that we have developed in March, which is the um, Pandemic Emergency Purchase Programme. It's, it's 1,850 billions, 1.8 trillions to, to make it simpler. And we have used roughly 800 billions out of that. We still have a lot. If we need it all, we'll use it all. If we need more, it will be expanded. If we don't need it all because the financing conditions will remain favorable and we head towards a return to our uh, inflation path, then we will not use it all. But I think that, you know, that's where we are. Our compass is favorable financing conditions and the direction in which we're heading is a return to the inflation path that we had pre-pandemic. So you now you mentioned inflation. I can't resist asking you about whether you see inflation at all as a risk, too high inflation, because as you know, there is a live debate right now in America about this, about whether with all of this stimulus, there may be unanticipated and perhaps unwanted inflation. Where are you on that? You know, I don't think that we are worrying about reflation at this point in time. And uh, it's going to be a while before we worry about, uh, about inflation. If, if you consider how far we are from our aim, which is at the moment and pending the completion of our strategy review, close to but below 2%, we are very far away. The forecast that we have for the medium term is 1.4% inflation in 2023. If you look at where we were pre-pandemic, we were at 1.6%, which in and of itself was not even close to that uh, famous 2%. We are seeing numbers that are much better. Germany was a point in case, but we we will see through that because we are in the medium term still seeing uh, inflation, uh, certainly not robustly converging towards our aim at all. Uh, And we will still have weak demand. We will still have Um, you know, wage uh, downward pressure, and we probably will continue, at least we will monitor uh, the impact on on prices of exchange rate. No worries about inflation? Not for the moment, for sure. Let's move to the longer term consequences of this pandemic, because um, one thing is how quickly economies recover. And and I think you've made a very strong case that it's going to take a while and we should be thinking 2022 and we will need accommodative policy until then. But what do you see as the longer term scarring consequences of this. And I'm thinking, for example, of of something that I know you have been very concerned about long before the pandemic, which is the widening of inequality that we've seen around the world. It's something you raised the alarm on when you were at the IMF very, very effectively. In so many ways, this pandemic has not just exposed existing inequalities, it's worsened them. How much does that worry you? And frankly, what do we need to do about it? You know, I think it raises the question of what kind of economy are we going to land in? I don't want to say go back to, because I think that the economy that we will land in, that will have morphed into, and, and there will be positives and there will be not positive outcome of that challenging uh, situation. So let's put it that way. If you look at the positive, the acceleration that has taken place, uh, which is affecting our life, 
is going to stay with us and probably for good. I mean, the way in which in Europe you have all these re retail little stores, which are the joy of our tourists and anybody who cares to shop. Well, they had to shut down. What did they do? A very large proportion of them actually have gone e-commerce and are operating in a different way and have adjusted uh, as well. The way in which we consume some services. I'll tell you something, personal experience. I had to go and see a rheumatologist. Okay. Well, I called that person and she says, fine, next week. I thought, oh my goodness, this is great. It used to be a month. And she explained to me that we were going to have this moment together on screen. And I said, well, okay. And I asked her, I said, have you been functioning in that way for a long time? Since March. Has it worked? Yes, it has. Will you continue doing so? Yes, I will. So I think a lot of the, I mean, this is a personal example, but if you look at, uh, we have data from the US in particular on, on telemedicine, but about 70% of the additional 50% of Americans who have used telemedicine are keen to continue using it that way. So I think the way in which we, we buy, we pay, we learn, we uh, look after our health will be different and probably, uh, probably for good. The second outcome is climate change. You know, it doesn't escape people that not using planes as much as we used to, teleworking a bit more than we ever did, has certainly raised the awareness of people about climate change. So I would regard those as the positive outcomes. Now, if you look at the not so positive outcome, clearly there has been a worsening of inequalities. And while it is not for a central bank to actually address and try to find the policies that will respond to the inequalities. I think it will be upon governments to identify the set of policies that will best respond to closing, reducing, addressing those inequalities. It won't surprise you, but I will mention women as those that have actually heavily suffered from uh, the worsened inequalities caused by the pandemic. And I'm not even here looking at the low-income countries, which are badly hit, particularly because of the, uh, the grey work, the informal work, which is predominantly done by women and which are the first to go in, in situations that we're going through at the moment. But if you look at the proportion of women that are victim of the current furlough schemes, often followed by layoff, women are taking a much heavier uh, burden than men. It's, it's really documented now very clearly. So in terms of inequalities, worsening in general of inequalities caused by the pandemic, but in particular segments, look at women, they are far more exposed and far more victims of the current circumstances. I think we're beginning to ask the question uh, to what degree we will look back at 2020, 2021 being a sort of turning point, you know, as perhaps 1945 was, or, you know, a big social contract turning point. Do you think, first of all, that we do need a new kind of social contract and that after the pandemic, there will be greater expectation from people for what government can and should do. And thus, we will see substantial changes in tax and spending policies. OK, I'm totally out of my central banking depth. No, but you're really interesting on this. That's why we're having a conversation on many subjects. So because this is something you've thought about a lot. The IMF, you gave many speeches on the nature of the social contract. So I'm really interested to, see, to hear what you think the impact of the pandemic has been 
and whether we are actually going to see any sort of serious change? The very short answer to your question is yes. A little further than that, I very, very much hope that governments and civil society representatives can identify the platforms that will actually allow this brainstorming, questioning, identification of positive, constructive responses for the future. Because yes, I believe that a, a social contract discussion is needed. If I listen to my children, their friends, almost grandchildren actually, they have this appetite and this urge for an identification of those values that they will respect, the kind of life that they want to have, how they want to contribute to society, how they want to respect the environment in which they live. And I don't think that we have done such a stellar job in addressing their concerns. What do you think the elements of that social contract are? I mean, is it different kinds of taxation? Is it a different approach to healthcare? Is it thinking differently about ageing and pensions? You know, what, where, is it a universal basic income, which is growing in, in, you know, certainly there are more adherents now than there were? You know, without digging into any particular segment, but I would say that a more accepted definition of common goods, I think I would start with that. From those common goods, what should actually be appropriated by the community at large and how much should, should be appropriated individually? And I think that health falls in that category big way, as we have seen. I think the second is you know, natural capital, which is clearly uh, not in the cards or not sufficiently in the cards at the moment, and which needs to be better appreciated, measured, supported on a sustainable basis so that we don't just exhaust uh, nature as we, as we, as we progress. Let, let's turn to climate change because you, you do care about it enormously and you have clearly made it a focus of your current job too. Um, firstly, you know, the pandemic, as you have said, has probably raised awareness of the need to do something on climate change, the challenge facing the planet. But it's also, I think, shown how difficult international cooperation is. I mean, international cooperation over the pandemic has not been great. So I guess my first question is, are you really sure that this experience should make us more optimistic about really having an acceleration in the action needed to deal with climate change? Oh, because I'm a, I'm a resolute optimist by nature. Um, I very much hope so. First of all, I think that we have learned that we can live with different rules, with different terms. The fact that we don't participate in this you know, carbon footprint that, uh, that we had, that we were leaving behind us as much, hopefully has taught us something. At the European level, I am also very positive because European Parliament, you know, very much ahead of the game and expecting very high commitments in terms of reduction of emissions. European Commission, also very demanding and putting money on the table, saying from those 750 billion euros that are available for you member states, you have to spend 30%, 30% on climate change initiative, on green initiative. So it's not just talks, it's not just signing at the bottom of the page, it's putting money on the table and public opinion is there. So it's not just Vice President Al Gore producing a film 10 years ago, it's now a very strong awareness that those things matter. 
And you have said very clearly that you want the ECB to be a climate pioneer. You, you push, you're pushing your organization in this direction. I just, I guess one very simple question, you know, what is it that you are actually going to do? And specifically, should central banks be using monetary policy as a tool to fight climate change? Because that is what people are interpreting your position as meaning, that you will start only buying bonds from non-polluting companies. No, no, this is not the case. I'm a pusher, but I'm also a realist. And I know that our mandate is price stability. And I know that we have to be totally focused on that. But as I know well that it is for other policymakers to stop spending subsidies on fossil fuel, to put in place carbon tax, to push um, uh, ETS, uh, to formulate uh, uh, border adjustment tax and so on and so forth and, and decide what kind of reductions will apply and what kind of support there will be uh, to reduce the, uh, the, the footprint. It is for them to do it. It's not for the central bank. But what we have to ask ourselves is how can we contribute while being loyal to our primary mandate? And is climate change having an impact on this primary mandate? And I think the answer to that is yes, climate change actually matters. When we do our macroeconomic analysis, we have to be mindful of the extreme climate events and what cost it inflicts on the economies. But just to be clear, it is, an, it is being mindful of it and uh, requiring disclosure. It is not deciding to buy only certain kinds of assets. There, there's, there's a difference, right? There is a difference. Uh, but I think one could, could, could actually have a serious impact on the other because there will be price differentiations, because there might be haircuts. We're not there. And this is something that the strategy review will, will debate. And, and it may well be that, you know, governing councils find me way too ambitious in trying to actually make sure that we are uh, taking climate change impact into the process of our monetary policy. I might fail, but I want to try. I'm sure it's not the only area that you are being uh, extremely ambitious on. And I want to move, I want to turn to another one, which is a, the first subject you brought up when you talked about the longer term consequences of the pandemic, which was the fact that we have, have gone digital. The way we live, the way we work, the way we shop, the way you and I are now communicating has completely changed. And I guess then what is the consequence of that for central banks? And there's a very interesting question from another subscriber, Samara Malik, which is, has the pandemic shown the world that it is time to make a major switch to digital trade and e-commerce? And what do you think the banking landscape in particular looks like in a digital age? So how fast are you going to change? And to be very specific, you know, when are you going to introduce a digital currency at the ECB? The Chinese are ahead of you. <laughs> well, as, as you know, that's another area that I'm really pushing and where I think that we have to, uh, to you know, accelerate the process as much as we can. We have completed a phase of consultation with those interested in Europe, and we've had a striking number of 8,000 people actually responding to us and saying, okay, we want this, we want that, we want privacy, we want safety, we want guarantee, we want the central banks to be involved. Taking all that in, it will be uh, analyzed in the, in the next couple of months. We will come back to the governing council with a, please let us go ahead with it. That's what I hope we'll, we shall see. 
uh, I think more and more are convinced that this is the way to go. We should have a digital currency, which will not exclude banknotes. Uh, we should have a digital currency that is respectful of privacy, uh, which is not selling data, which is not exploiting the data of people that are using it. A digital currency that also uses the canal of banks because banks will be part and parcel uh, in that uh, digital currency launch. And, and then we will have to you know, refine it to the point that it is completely safe, secure, and can be used effectively with less cost, more security, and on a voluntary basis. And what's what's the timing of this? Are we talking, you know, in the next year or two, or is this a kind of, you know, beyond your presidency kind of thing? Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> you know, we, we look at how long it took China to get there. They started six years ago. They're not live yet. They've been saying for about a year that they're ready to, to go, but they haven't gone. I hope less than the time it took them because hopefully the learning curve will be shorter. It's hard to say, but I would say in the next four years, we should be there. I just hope that uh, the audience appreciates that it's not to substitute existing payment means. So those who like banknotes will continue to use their banknotes, but those who want to use digital payment should be able to do so. And we should do it with, uh, in mind, stability of the system. It's a mean of payment, not a means of speculation and cannot expose the, uh, the safety and the stability of the banking system either. So there are lots of concerns that are out there that we need to address, but I'm, I'm certain that we can roll it out. Turning from that to the, there is, a, I think, interesting debate going on right now, and that countries which had female leaders have done better in the pandemic. Now we can discuss whether that to what degree it is true, but certainly there is an argument that many are making that that's true. And you famously said if it had been Lehman sisters rather than Lehman brothers, the world look, would look very different after the financial crisis. Is there something about female leadership that is different? Would we have been better off if more countries had been led by women during this pandemic? You know, there's been a, a Harvard study that was just recently published. Well, it's, it's an analysis of the perception that people have had of the way in which the crisis was managed. And there is an overwhelming response that shows, again, it's perception that people have had, that shows that they feel that women had had a better way to deal with the pandemic. Now, is that to say that they have done a fabulous job? Probably not. Is it to say that they had attributes such as empathy, such as appreciating the fear that people had, such as reaching out that, that was, um, you know, dominant in their way of dealing with the crisis? Probably so, yeah. And I would say, I would say one more thing, Zani. There are so fewer women than men actually in charge of those issues. That the fact that many of them have been successful is also an indication that they are pretty damn good. Thanks there to Christine Lagarde and Zani Minton-Beddows. As ever, we'd love to know what you think. Miss Lagarde says the virtual euro might be just four years away. Would you be first to sign up to her digital currency? And should central banks be leading the way on combating climate change? Or is that a job better left to elected politicians? What's the right balance there? Write to us, radio at economist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. And if you're not yet a subscriber, well, it's very easy to become one. You can sign up to more webinars like these for your questions to be answered. Do go to economist.com slash podcast offer and the link is, conveniently enough, 
in the show notes. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist. <laughs>